Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. It is my privilege and honor to introduce my colleague and friend, Gabriel J. Katanis, who is the director of the Filipino American Ministry Initiative at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he teaches Christian ethics. He is also the founding and lead pastor of Garden City Covenant Church, a congregation serving immigrant families and young professionals. He has been a lead pastor for 13 years, and he received his PhD from Loyola University in Chicago, where he now lives with his wife and two children. Gabriel J. Katanis, the floor is yours. Welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. David Chow and the whole team at the Center for Asian American Christianity. Thank you all of you and um, who are at Princeton and those who've joined online. I'm happy to see Fuller colleagues in the room and also students, Filipino-American and otherwise. Um, I just want to apologize for the ugly background. Uh, I'm in a church right now that's letting me use the room with the best internet because I'm at a denominational conference at the same time. And um, yet something about being a mint groom or pastel room like this reminds me of being in the Philippines. So let's get into it. Um, a little bit about me. This is the family that I have. I'm so blessed to be married to my, my wife of uh, 10 years and our two sons. This is us on Easter Sunday in Chicago, right on the lakefront. Of course, it was beautiful that day. And then the next day it snowed or something like that. I am the director of the Filipino American Ministry Initiative, as Dr. Chow said, and here are some of our students. It's an honor to work there alongside Dr. Daniel Lee and Eleanor Belon and others. And I'm so happy to represent, but also to be a partner with what great things are happening at Princeton. Something about me, two things actually, that make my perspective a little bit unique is that as I do this research and talk about these scholarly issues in academic settings. I'm also uh, a pastor and a church planter's kid. So this is the church in downtown Toronto that my parents planted in 1978. And just last year, they celebrated their 45th anniversary. And my brothers and I were born in Canada. Then we came to the United States where my parents planted more churches. And now they live in the Philippines and they are continuing to plant churches over there as well. As you can see in the picture, my youngest son was not excited about being there that day, but we understand that church is not easy for everyone. And, you know, in 2016, this picture is old now, but I've had the honor for, I guess, maybe 10, 11 years or so of integrating academic theology and ministry with ethnic identity from within the Filipino-American community. So I don't know if that makes me unique and special or strange or both, um, but I'm excited to bring these things together with you all today. In this presentation, in the short time we have, I want to show you three things that Filipino-American unbelonging is rooted in colonialism. Then it'll come through clearly and be perhaps a good chunk of our time. I want to shed light also on these experiences as they manifest within U.S. context and especially in churches, given the nature of our conversation today. And I hope to demonstrate how Filipino-American theology then develops from varied concepts of home. And I'll say more about that, but you know, a lot of it relates to what Dr. Mo was talking about, and even some of the things I'll say will bring back a few themes from what Dr. Hong presented earlier. And of course, all this relates to the overview given by Dr. Chow this morning. 
So first, after centuries of colonial violence, Filipino-American identity and Christianity are characterized by experiences of unbelonging. Unbelonging. In the beginning, as we say, when we read Genesis or the Gospel of John, um, you know, Filipinos understood themselves as at the center of creation. Uh, F. Landa Hokano, who's an anthropologist, said that the ancient Filipinos thought they were the original people of the world. They had many accounts on how the world came to be populated, of course, with the group to which they belong as the center of creation. Just want to remind you that what we now call the Philippines is a collection of islands, an archipelago, right, of, of more than 7,000 islands and growing, apparently. Uh, but I'm going to read this account of one deity named Kabunian and a story of creation. So bear with me as I read this and then get into more slides. But becoming weary and lonesome in his heavenly abode, Kabunian one day descended to earth. While he was strolling alongside the ridge of Mount Pulog, he beheld the picturesque hillsides. Lying desolate beneath the rising clouds of mists coming from the depths of the valley below, he was fascinated by the sight. For several days, the great god did not know what to do. Then on the third day of his pondering, a thought suddenly struck him. He would make human beings to cultivate the hillsides and valleys for him. So he sat down on a big stone by the hillside of Mount Pulog and, although it was getting dark, took a handful of soft clay called linong and molded it into a human form. Since it was past evening when he finished his first model, the dark hue of the night sank deep into the skin of the clay man, and it became dark. It's bad, Kabunian muttered disappointedly. I'll wait for the morrow to fashion a better one. So the great Kabunian retired, leaving his first model to get darker and darker as night went deeper and deeper. Early before dawn the following day, he woke up. Eager to finish his task and see what his second model would be, he instantly set to work even when it was still a little dark. He finished his second model just as dawn was gathering more light in the east. The pale reflection of the approaching morn struck the model and it became white. Not good either, the great god said, shaking his head. In disgust, he took another handful of clay. This time, he said firmly, my skill won't fail me. The sun was now high across the clear blue sky. Perspiring, the god kept on working mixing and molding the clay until it was finished. Then wiping his forehead, he placed his third model in the sunlight to dry. It was nearly noon and the warm breeze sweeping across his face made Kabunian sleepy. Stretching his numbed legs, he lay down and took a nap. And when he woke up, he beheld standing before him a sturdy and perfectly molded form of little brown fellow. The first but black model became the father of the black people. The white one became the ancestor of the white men, and the brown one the first of the brown race. Now, this is a very different kind of narrative, a pre-colonial creation account. And it depicts Filipinos as understanding themselves at the center of creation and also among the races, not to be improved upon, perhaps. That's a far cry from how Filipinos learned to understand themselves under Spanish colonialism. This picture says much as these young Filipino boys sit near the feet of these Dominican friars with one light-skinned Spanish priest in the middle. 
The Spanish caste system developed soon after, similar to in other colonized territories where the Spanish settled, with peninsulares at the top who were full-blooded Spaniards from Spain, born in Spain, not in the Philippines or anywhere in Asia, but they were at the top. And of course, as the tones in the graphic become darker, so also it moves downward toward the Negritos, who were indigenous dark-skinned people uh, living far away, usually far away from cities that developed. And it's no surprise then that even today, about one in every two Filipino women or Filipinas uses skin whiteners. This is from Rajuli Mendoza in that journal cited there. This is an advertisement that was quite popular when it came out, but on the top left of the screen in Tagalog says, just because they're light-skinned, does that mean they should get a better seat on the bus? And of course, in English, we have a survey result on the top right. Three in five Filipinos believe that people with fairer skin receive better treatment from others. Unfair, diba, means isn't that unfair? And on the lower right, the response from the advertisers is, don't get mad, get Glutamax, which is the name of a skin whitener. Large industry, very lucrative, despite the dangers of toxicity that go with um, usage. And as the Americans took over the Philippines, even despite, you know, attempts at Filipino resistance, we saw that the unbelonging extended not only from Filipinos not belonging in their own bodies and skin, but to more areas of life. And this is a cover of Judge Magazine. You can't see perhaps what is at the bottom, but it reads, President William McKinley giving the Filipino their first bath. And the waters are of civilization. Of course, we know what's meant by that. And um, there's a dark-skinned indigenous Filipino, uh, smaller in stature, being carried and held and washed and scrubbed by an American president with the previous um, bathies in the background seeming to be happy as they put on the stars and stripes. President William McKinley, a Methodist, said these things, among others, but famously, there was nothing left for us to do but to take them all and educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them. Susan Harris says that the story of the U.S. special mission became a means of creating a community and specifying who belonged to it. The insiders were those who were either white Protestants or who had fully assimilated to white Protestant culture. The outsiders were everyone in need of uplift. So here's a picture from Siliman University in Dumaguete, not too far from where my family um, mostly lives in the Philippines. And I have family members who went to this university, which was, I think, the first Protestant university in the Philippines. And you can see from the way that they have all been dressed and clothed and everything seems to be aligned that the colonial efforts in some ways were having an effect but it was clear who belonged and who did not. Jennifer Halleck says, the American denominations would decide to merge into the United Church of Christ in the Philippines, the UCCP. And it was their hope that this would provide more unity to fight the Catholic front. Because remember, the Protestants from the United States believed that the Spanish had not properly done the job in evangelizing the Filipinos, so they wanted to finish that work. But it was not very successful, Halleck continues. These more traditional churches would end up losing the war to the nationalized independent churches. And I just want to include this quote to remind us that there was colonization, but there was always and will always be resistance. But this 
you know, formation of unbelonging continues and extends even beyond the Philippine borders. Robin Rodriguez, sociologist, says the Philippine state after U.S. colonialism has reconfigured ideas of national belonging to encourage its citizens to leave the Philippines while simultaneously fostering their ties to the homeland. Let me illustrate a little bit how this works, but there is this intentional effort. And this is also, for those who know Carlos Bulasan, the author and Filipino-American labor activist who wrote earlier, you know, in the 1930s and on, he um, has this script and in this conversation between himself and his relative who he had not seen in a long time named Consorcio, he sees that a relative in California says, not American citizen yet. And Consorcio says, you should have told me. Carlos says, told you what? Consorcio says, Filipinos can become American citizens. Carlos says, well, I could have told you, but I wanted you to learn. Consorcio says, at least I speak better English now. And then Carlos says, this is a country of great opportunity. To which Consorcio replies, you have a wonderful dream. And Consorcio leaves. Um, you know, these kind of signs were seen up and down the West Coast, but especially as Filipino labor began to supply American agricultural needs, then formerly employed or higher paid laborers, uh, mostly white, but others as well, were upset. And they began to threaten with violence, these Filipino migrant workers. Now, back to the church discussion. This is Haro Evangelical Church, right there in the heart of Iloilo City. And that island, Panay, where Iloilo is, where this church is, was the island uh, kind of claimed by the Baptists when the American missionaries came. And this was the first Baptist church in the Philippines, and important because they established the, the first um, nursing school in the Philippines. Down the street from Haro Evangelical Church is Central Philippine University. And this is the school where my mother and many of my other relatives also attended in order to be trained in nursing. And to do what? Of course, to meet the labor and nursing needs of the West. So this is an advertisement shared by Catherine Sinisa Choi in 1965 or 69, I think, but saying there's a job waiting for you at Michael Reese Hospital, Chicago, Illinois, USA, if, and you can't read everything down there, but if you were previously a nurse in the visitor exchange program, and if you've been back in the Philippines for the required number of years, and you're eligible to be a nurse in Illinois, then you can come and work in Chicago as a nurse. And as soon as, as Dr. Hong said, you know, the um, Immigration Act was passed, then to meet these labor needs, more skilled laborers came, especially from places like the Philippines, where they were trained uh, to speak English as soon as the Americans took over the educational system. And this is an old graphic because by now the United States already has 4.1 million Filipinos, but you can see here that the spread of Filipinos to work around the world is concentrated in North America, Australia, Europe, and East Asia and the Middle East. So areas um, with more high income, with more uh, development, Filipino workers have been sent there. And some as residents and, you know, having natural born citizens in those places like in the United States, but others as what we call OFWs who are temporary workers. Again, belonging to both the Philippines, but also to other places under specific conditions. And this is an important migration because, or diaspora, because 
the money that is sent back home to the Philippines from these migrants as they travel around the world, whether they're settling permanently or working temporarily, it sustains, it is 10% of the Philippine GDP. Uh, this has gone to the point that, you know, for the last 20 something years, we have what are called the Bagong Bayani Awards, meaning the modern day or new hero awards. And the new heroes are people who work overseas. If you can read the conditions underneath, it says any active overseas for Filipino worker, OFW, whether land-based or sea-based, et cetera, who meets the qual following qualification. And across the world, Filipino migrant workers are nominated and then honored in this way to kind of celebrate their contributions, not only to where they live and work and represent the Philippines well, but also to the Philippine economy by sending money to relatives, of course, with fees for the billions of dollars remitted. Well, the challenge of this is while they are called heroes and they do often move in love and sacrifice, they are away from their families and uh, the referring to heroism clouds, even hides much of the power dynamics and the suffering that they endure, which is a legacy of colonialism. Even where they live and work, they really do not belong. So Filipino-American Christians, as I wind down this first part, have been taught that we do not belong in our own skin or on our own homelands, but that it is necessary or even heroic to leave the Philippines and also our Filipino-ness, especially if we seek to belong in the United States. Having said that, we can see this unbelonging manifest in ways that are very significant within the church, pastorally and ecclesially, um, as Filipino-Americans negotiate their faith living further away, or even raising the next generation away from the Philippines. I just want to comment on two aspects of how this unbelonging manifests, especially in communities like churches. The first is colonial mentality, which I've already given other talks and written articles about, but it's a perception of ethnic or cultural inferiority, a specific consequence of centuries of colonization under Spain and the U.S., a form of internalized oppression that reject anything Filipino and glorifies the colonizer's values, looks, and religious traditions. I think this is important for those of us who are doing multi-ethnic ministry, especially for Filipino Americans who find themselves in predominantly white churches and institutions. Um, but I would say it's also true in Asian American contexts. It's a struggle for Filipino Americans, given all that they have experienced by way of unbelonging, to discern and negotiate Asian American identity. Anthony Ocampo, a sociologist, says for many, based on his research, um, the Filipino student organization pro provided the only space where their Filipinoness had any cachet. In contrast, Filipino identity felt like a liability not only in the classroom, but also in settings where whites and other Asians dominated the social landscape. You know, there are some other spaces that I can think of where whites and other Asians dominate church, the academy, even the world of theology. Here in um, the Midwest, just two and a half hours down from where I live in Chicago, uh, there was a famous case of Covenant Fellowship Church, which was um, exposed to have uh, experienced much abuse under its former senior pastor. And I am personally connected to many loved ones who survived that space for many years. For too long, they were down there. And even just last week, speaking to a few of them who find themselves um, in other settings, one, you know, remains in predominantly Korean American settings, but has been recovering from what happened in that church for um, the last few years. 
And, um, you know, he shared to me a story about another Filipino American who he works closely with, and they both serve predominantly Korean American churches, but have this longing that they discovered to be Filipino freely, um, but also this struggle because where they are, they simply don't have that freedom. Um, uh, another story that just last week came up related to this same Korean American church, which was at one time the largest Asian American church in the whole Midwest, um, was of the Filipino ministry within that church, which tried so hard to find their belonging and even made maybe too many concessions over the years in doing so. Um, but they really were the strength behind the church's many ministries, but including the dance ministry. So um, one of Anthony Ocampo's interviewees said, all of the Filipinos growing up were the cool Asians. They were into dance. And the story told to me last week was that, you know, this Filipino group, which were the muscle and the energy of the dance ministry of that Korean American church, they, they were finally reaching out to the campus and to their Filipino American friends and had the opportunity to perform um, in front of the whole Filipino American organization on campus at the University of Illinois. Um, but when it was found out that they would be performing in an event that was in a venue which served alcohol, they were not allowed. Even though during the event, there was no alcohol to be served. They were told by the pastor and the leadership that that would not be acceptable. And the challenge thing about this many years invested in belonging there was um, that, you know, Filipinos, as we know, love to dance and are also okay with alcohol. And yet, in order to belong within this community, they would have had to have sacrificed so many things that were normal for themselves as Filipino Americans. So we come to Filipino American theology, and we can see that given this history, and these experiences, especially in churches, which are supposed to be places of belonging, doing theology and ministry among Filipino Americans is constructive work. And it reflects um, varied concepts of home. This is a picture of what we call bayanihan, right? It's, it's moving, that's how 60 men together lifting this hut. And you can see other generations and people watching as they do so. Um, but this is a typical image to express that Filipino value of bayanihan, um, communal unity by helping each other in achieving a specific goal. You know, literally bayanihan means to be a people or to be a country. So they're like countrying or peopling together. And that's a value that we hold um, and how we belong to one another, but also a good image for us as we think about what Filipino American churches are and how theology and ministry there is constructing homes. One way of looking at this, of course, it will be critical of it, but is the idea of America as eschaton, as the very end or as the goal. And people who embrace this for different experiences, perhaps because they were under martial law, under Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, and they escaped that um, in order to come to what they understood to be a more free democracy. They might embrace a theology like this, as was said to, you know, to Moses, that they would be brought into a land, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they would see the United States as a promised land, and in that way, an eschaton, their, their heavenly home, in a sense. Um, so these are real church signs that I found through Google search, and you can ask me for citations um, afterwards. But this is a Filipino-American church 
And the logo combines the stars and stripes with the Philippine flag, but it says under God, indivisible. And the only thing you start to realize is missing is the words one nation. And the idea there is that they are one nation as Filipinos within the United States. And the graphic, as you see on the bottom of the screen, was developed by a, some kind of patriotist patriot, patriotic organization. This is actually also another image posted on a Filipino-American church page of a white Jesus enrobed in white, of course, holding a Filipino or Philippine flag. And there's much that that communicates um, to us. Anthony Ocampo went to a Trump rally um, in 2020 and reflected on the experience as apathetically as he could. And for those of us who have parents who maybe um, would support some of the, the policies held by the previous administration, this is um, maybe hits home for us. This is what was said by a supporter of Donald Trump. Filipinos who immigrate here never ask for a handout. We never ask for government handouts. They believe in hard work. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And getting what you deserve through merit, that's the Filipino heart. I would disagree with that, by the way. But um, anyway, Ocampo reflects on her comments, saying, DiPario's remarks echoed a trope embraced by many of the attendees. Filipinos are good immigrants, dutifully assimilating to their adopted country. Lenny Strobel, in her book, says, we are scattered all over the world now like aimless wanderers in search of a home still. Many of us left the Philippines to follow the master to his home, to live in his world misled by the promises of democratic ideals taught by the Thomasite teachers and later the missionaries and Peace Corps volunteers who roamed our countryside with their civilizing mission. The second way that we see Filipino-American churches using different understandings of home are in what Joaquin J. Gonzalez calls two homes and two hearts, or Stephen Cherry also talks about this as being faithfully Filipino and American. But they might adopt a theology that reflects what's in Jeremiah 29, which is said to the exiles here, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. The idea being that they had to make a home where they were, even though they desired to go back home to Judea. And so they had, in a sense, the home in two places. Um, and we can see this is actually a picture of the church in which I grew up, where there is the cross and then on each side, um, one flag, American and Filipino. That's, that's me closest to the cross, by the way, getting in trouble. For example, in, in the Archdiocese of Chicago, you know, we celebrate Simang Gabi, which is church at night, a practice going back to the Philippines to serve laborers who had to go to church at night around Christmas time. And in my previous church, cultural dance, Philippine cultural dance happening in the church space to make a home for newly arrived immigrants and their children. A third way we can look at home is home as spiritually constructed. And this might reflect a theology that's not as popular, but I want to work on that. And um, Ephesians 2, 11, or 21 and 22 says, In him, Jesus, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. That's Jews and Gentiles who were formerly hostile. Built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So the idea of home being constructed through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the church that I pastor when we, 2019, our, our Easter before COVID hit. 
uh, you know, obviously it was about a year before COVID hit. And then this is um, our church just at the beginning of this month celebrating Easter. And we grew a lot. And a lot of people had the narrative that churches were all dying or suffering through the pandemic, but our church grew. And this is not in any way something that I can claim credit for. So I just want to be really clear about that. We have wonderful people um, and I'm just one of, of many of them. But how did we grow? And I think one way was that our church really desired and even in some ways paid the cost to express solidarity, especially with believers from other backgrounds. So here are several of us at you know one prayer demonstration, but we participated in many others and still do even just two weeks ago in our city and trying to live out the spirit of what we saw in Ephesians chapter two, verses 21 and 22. And I think that what is being said there is bringing to light what Maria Root said in 1997, home for most Filipino Americans may be in the United States or the Philippines or both. The ancestral home for those in the second, third, fourth, and later generations may reside in the psyche and the soul. So home is in a way spiritually constructed, but also functions as an imaginary. I want to make two concluding applications. And the first is about ecclesiology. This is a value to folks from any background because we recognize that to belong is to heal. To belong is to heal. And our communities, especially those of us who have suffered colonialism and violence, we have layers of woundedness. So this discussion is very important for all of us. And ethics, finally. I would say home is where the responsibility is. They work together, perhaps mutually informed, but wherever home is, there we are responsible. I can stop there and hopefully invite your questions. Thank you for listening. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences 